Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Welcome to the show. If there's an overarching theme to today's show, it's what the hell is going on. But I mean, maybe that's the overarching theme every Monday when we try to figure out uh, what the Trump administration is doing. Um, this time we're going to look at, at where policy is coming from. So in our second segment, where we'll talk a little bit about Steve Mnuchin's uh, visit to finance directors from the G20 nations and what, what it's like when he brings the Trump message into an international forum. And final segment today will be T for the Tillerman or Tillerson. Rex Tillerson is uh, completing his trip to Asia, and we'll be talking to Simon Denyer, China Bureau Chief for The Washington Post. Also from The Washington Post, our guest here right at the top, Philip Rucker, White House Bureau Chief at The Washington Post, joins us. He's been writing quite a bit about well, sort of um, the battle for turf within the White House, within the advisors who are putatively as close to Donald Trump uh, as you can get. So, Philip Rucker, I don't think that five, six, or seven years ago, I would have been reading a story like yours and thinking, oh, if only the people from Goldman Sachs could get the upper hand, they could save America. Uh, but I did find myself <laughs> saying that. Uh, there are two um, veterans of Gold- Goldman Sachs who, I guess, represent so moderate a strain of thinking in the White House that the other side calls them the Democrats. Is that fair? That's exactly right. So what we have inside the Trump White House is a constantly evolving power matrix. And uh, when the administration started, you'll recall, it, it seemed to be Steve Bannon versus Reince Priebus, the outsiders versus the establishment Republicans. And what we have now is a shift. Um, Bannon and Priebus are actually aligned and working together uh, to try to keep Trump to his campaign promises, to try to uh, keep the agenda sort of hardline conservative Republican agenda, and they're increasingly at odds with a pair of Goldman Sachs executives, Gary Cohn and Dina Powell, uh, who are senior advisors to the president. Gary Cohn directs the National Economic Council, and Dina Powell handles economic initiatives and also serves as deputy national security advisor. And the two of them, they sometimes uh, align with Jared Kushner, the president's son-in-law, and Ivanka Trump, his daughter, and other New Yorkers. They really are a moderating force. They try to uh, to, to moderate the president's tone, his policies, his approach to governing. And they have a lot of access to the president. He likes them. He likes that they are business people who have achieved tremendous success in Manhattan, who are worth millions uh, from their own earnings. And he listens to them, but he's not necessarily taking their advice. A lot of the early wins have been for Bannon and Priebus. Yeah, and so, and Dina Powell, I think, is a very interesting figure, so someone who's yeah. very, very close to Ivanka Trunk, born in Egypt, speaks Arabic, so maybe a slightly more worldly uh, view uh, than some of the other views inside the White House. But what does that all translate to in terms of advice? I mean, can you give an example of where they would have said do A and uh, Bannon and Miller would have said do B? Well, sure. There are a number of examples on uh, climate policy, for example. You know, they they want a more sort of business-friendly, moderate approach, and yet uh, President Trump has been very clear on climate policy. He's basically gutting the the EPA, the, the you know the budget for scientific research 
uh, has been almost zeroed out in his America First budget. That's the title of it. But I'll give you one uh, sort of colorful example that I think illustrates the divide, and it's something my colleague Bob Costa and I reported on in this story over the weekend, and it came over the Trump's, over the president's schedule last week. He had a big event in Detroit, uh, the auto industry event, and there was a question about where he would travel afterwards. And the Prime Minister of Canada, Justin Trudeau, had invited Trump to attend a, a show on Broadway, Come From Away. Uh, it, it's a celebration of the generosity of foreigners to Americans after 9-11. And the New York advisors were really encouraging the go him to go to this show, and instead he said, nope, I'm going to go uh, down to Nashville, Tennessee, which he did last Wednesday night to pay homage to Andrew Jackson, the seventh president, and his uh, nationalist agenda, and that's something that Steve Bannon had really pushed. So it's a side of Trump, you know, uh, weighing both sides here and, and taking advice from both, both camps, but siding with Bannon, as he often does. Yeah, no, that example is really funny. Come from a ways about uh, these uh, 6,000 or so people who got trapped in some small town in Newfoundland. That's and, right. And the way that the, uh, or Greenland maybe, I can't remember where. And, and the way the town, knew it was Newfoundland, yeah. all right. And the way the town sort of kind of took care of them. It's a musical. Although I will say, Phil, that if you uh, go to the, the website of that Broadway show, there are all these reviews from people like Ben Brantley saying, the perfect antidote to these dark times. And, you know, <laughs> just, just the kind of medicine America needs at a moment like this. Yeah, so, it would have been quite a statement for President Trump to show up at that play, because uh, the, the play is, is, in some ways, you could read it as an indirect swipe at, at his policies, at, at what the Trump presidency is doing uh, in America. So, you know, uh, as I suggested later uh, in the show, in the next two segments, we're going to be talking specifically about two cabinet secretaries, Steve Mnuchin from Treasury and then uh, Rex Tillerson uh, from State. And then the question is, I mean, you're sort of talking about two sets of competing worldviews that are umbrellas over sets of policies. Does either one of those map precisely onto what cabinet officials do, or is it possible that Tillerson, Mnuchin, you know, some of these other people have yet another set of ideas that might be slightly different from both, you know, the the Dina Powell uh, and and Cohn segment versus the Bannon and Miller segment? You know, it's a, that's a great question, and the answer to that is it's all kind of different. <laughs> There's, they, uh, we've learned uh, so far covering this administration that there really is no clear sort of dividing line between camps, that the factions all change based on the issue and are constantly evolving. You know, generally speaking, Tillerson uh, is working very closely with Dina Powell and with Jared Kushner and, and sort of has that business kind of New York state of mind, um, as does Steve Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary. But on certain issues, they could vary, of course. And I mean, one, pl- one place to look is trade, which is increasingly coming to the forefront of the president's agenda. And uh, Mnuchin has just returned from a trip to Europe where he met with his counterparts from the G20 nations and caused quite a stir because the U.S. did not sign on to uh, communique, rather, about uh, trade that really alarmed a lot of European allies. Wilbur Ross, another sort of New York billionaire business figure, is now the Commerce Secretary and responsible for executing and rewriting a lot of these trade deals, and is going to be in the thick of it. 
One of the stories that made quite a bit of news today was uh, written by two of your colleagues uh, about yeah. the appearance of these so-called commissars, political appointees, or at least political monitors who are showing up at, uh, in, in cabinet departments, kind of making sure that whatever the distilled product that comes out of the White House is, that, that it, it is reflected in, in the thinking of, uh, of, right. the, of that cabinet. And although it's I mean, you know, on a case-by-case basis, like it's happened once in a while in other administrations, we can talk about that. But uh, this is kind of system-wide, right? They got somebody at NASA just making sure NASA toes the line. Yeah, you know, it's a really interesting story. It was by uh, my colleagues Lisa Ryan and uh, and Juliet Alperin in the Post, and they documented how in a lot of these agencies there are political appointees called senior advisors to the White House, and they are basically the eyes and ears of the Trump White House on the agencies, making sure that the cabinet secretaries and the other appointees in the agencies are executing the president's vision, the president's agenda, uh, testing their loyalties, kind of making sure everything's in order. Now, it's not unusual for the White House to have some interaction like that with the departments, but the way uh, the arrangement is described in this piece certainly is taking it a step further than past administrations have taken it. Now, the White House officials actually say, no, no, this is totally normal. You know, this is what we had in the Obama White House and the Bush White House. And, you know, they're right. There's always going to be some oversight uh, of these agencies and departments and some expectation of loyalty. But in this case, I think the officials that are in these positions are are, are really working on behalf of the White House. And and in particular, a, a gentleman named Rick Dearborn, who's the deputy chief of staff, and it's my understanding also that some of these advisors in these agencies are also uh, there on behalf of Jared Kushner, who's the president's son-in-law and senior advisor and has really tremendous authority over all things in the government right now. But that sort of gets us right back where we started, you know, yeah. to this very confusing state of things. Like if you before this weekend, before I read your coverage and some of the other coverage, I would have said, well, kind of Bannon and Miller. I mean, they're creating policy. The president himself doesn't really seem to be a policy wonk. In the in that vacuum, Bannon and Miller have achieved a real policy hegemony. But I mean, you've argued very. You just talked about Jared Kushner again, and that would be this other group, this kind of New York oriented uh, group that includes these Goldman Sachs people who uh, who apparently are not unheard and it does create quite a bit of confusion (laughs) like where does policy come from but here's here's what's so different about president trump he actually talks to a lot of people every day people go in and out of that oval office literally all day long he has a lot of meetings he has a lot of different advisors who bring him different bits of advice just because you have FaceTime with him and are being listened to by him doesn't mean that he's executing on your idea or, or following your advice so you have, you know, these Goldman Sachs figures certainly have his respect. They have his, his attention. They can go in there and, and advise him on any number of issues. But, you know, in many cases, he's not been siding with them. He's been siding with Steve Bannon, who is probably the most influential aide when it comes to shaping policy in the White House. Uh, Jared Kushner has a lot of power as well. But, you know, he's not only dealing with policy, he's dealing a lot with personnel decisions and sort of the structure of the government itself. And I would point out that Jared Kushner is particularly involved in foreign affairs. So he's carved out as part of his portfolio the relationship with China, uh, the relationship with Mexico and Canada, and the relationships in the Middle East uh, as it relates to the, the peace process in Israel. And those are, you know, you might argue the three biggest foreign policy uh, issues facing this president. So he's keeping him, himself busy on foreign policy 
And I think Bannon is doing a lot more of, of these other policies. Maybe it's just too early to know how all of this works out, right? We're not 100 days in yet. Maybe 200 days in, we we can see that Rex Tillerson does or doesn't have a kind of free hand, maybe something at least comparable to what Kerry and Clinton had as secretaries of state. I mean, not that they didn't have to toe certain Obama administration policy lines, but they also clearly were kind of actors, you know, on the international scene. And and I think it, that's less clear about Tillerson or any of these other cabinet appointees, whether they can really kind of carve out their own fiefdoms or whether they're going to be micromanaged by these other groups. You're exactly right. And I think um, it, it, I feel like it's a little bit too early to judge exactly where Tillerson's going to fit in uh, to this structure. So Tillerson's in there. He, he meets with the president usually twice a week and, uh, and, and is being heard. It's unclear to me how much he himself is actually driving the decisions and the policies and how much of, of it is him taking direction from the White House or from other figures like Defense Secretary Jim Mattis, who is a trusted um, member of the inner circle when it comes to, to these issues, as well as McMaster, H.R. McMaster, General McMaster, who's the, the new national security advisor who replaced Michael Flynn and is seen as a very strong and authoritative presence within the White House. So, uh, you know, Tillerson just returned from this trip to Asia where the main headline seemed to be his kind of stepping up the rhetoric of North Korea and saying that military options are on the table, that we're uh, considering everything and dealing with the nuclear threat from North Korea. But we're going to have to see where it goes from here. So uh, last question. Uh, we're talking to yeah. Phil Rucker, uh, White House Bureau Chief of the Washington Post. This, I, I mean, I hate to seem facile about this, but this does slightly resemble this whole idea of sort of different factions competing for dominance in some kind of zero-sum game. This does slightly resemble The Apprentice, um, you know, <laughs> um, that The Apprentice wasn't about like one person with a very clear policy gathering around him a bunch of other people who could help him e- execute that policy. It was about setting a bunch of different groups and teams uh, in motion, uh, not uh, often in, in opposition to one another. Is this a little bit of the president's style maybe manifesting itself, that he, he doesn't necessarily want to have one clear uh, pole star to sail by? You're exactly right. And this style is not just um, evident in The Apprentice on reality TV. It's been evident throughout Donald Trump's career. So the way, one of the ways he managed uh, his businesses at, you know, at the Trump Organization is by having competing executives and competing fiefdoms. You know, it's one of the ways he gets leverage when he's making deals with outside companies is he has, you know, he likes to have a, a sense of competition uh, to, to get to a, a better deal. And of course, it's exactly how he ran his campaign, which was, you know, 18 months long. And he had three different campaign managers and a number of other advisors who were kind of up and down and up and down uh, every week and competing with each other. And you know, I think he likes a little bit of the chaos, but he also thinks it's it's beneficial for the whole enterprise. He feels like if the advisors are competing with each other, then you know you have a situation where the best idea uh, can win out, or the best advisor, the strongest person, can win out, and the weak kind of fall by the wayside. And that's what he wants to have in this White House. All right, Philip Rucker, uh, White House bureau chief for the Washington Post. You've been very generous with your with your time. Thank you very much. Yeah, happy to do it. Thank you. Have okay. a good day. Bye bye now. We're back. 
I've decided I want to do those kind of Ira Glass style titles. So coming up in our third segment, T for the Tillerson. In this in this act, how are things in Baden Baden? Uh, in fact, we are going to talk about uh, what happens uh, or what did actually happen uh, when the new Secretary of the Treasury convened with other financial leaders uh, from the G20 group. Um, this uh, uh, happened in the over the last few days, and so it was kind of the first introduction of the international community to um, to the Trump policies, to the Trump era of international financial relations. Joining us now to talk about that is Jack Ewing, European economics correspondent reporting from Frankfurt for The New York Times. His book on the Volkswagen scandal will be published on May 23rd, which I think is the anniversary of John Jankowski buying his Volkswagen. Um, anyway, so Jack Ewing, um, welcome to our show. Yeah, uh, Colin, it's great to be here. Thanks. Yeah, good to hear your voice again. Uh, and... So um, Steve Mnuchin showed up for this uh, sort of financial leadership meeting of the G20. It was kind of like the Avengers getting together and then Captain America suddenly announcing he was no longer down with one of the Avengers core principles, right? There's this, yeah. there's this thing they all say, right, about doing everything they can to resist protectionism. And it turns out they're not going to say that anymore. Right. Yeah, they had, they had a lot of trouble. I mean, these, these meetings are usually pretty boring. It was just the, uh, the central bank presidents and the finance ministers. I mean, it's something all the journalists go to, but not much comes out of it. And they issue a communique at the end, which is you know, usual, usually a you know, lowest common denominator of what they could agree on. But, but even the, the low denominator from the last meeting was unattainable because the, uh, the Trump people just didn't want to say anything at all about uh, trade or protectionism or all these things that are usually not at all controversial. Right. So, I mean, in general, the, the core belief system of the G20 includes that idea, right, that there aren't going to be trade barriers, that the whole, the whole thing, the whole ethos of this organization is about the promotion of international trade. Yeah, exactly. And, and that was totally taken for granted in, until last weekend, until uh, last week. You know, we're going to be talking in the third segment about uh, Rex Tillerson in China. That was kind of a preliminary or a warm-up to uh, to a, a future summit uh, in April. Um, and, and this thing is sort of a prelim, too, right, that there's going to be an actual leaders' summit in July uh, at which the leaders, uh, all of the leaders from the G20, will get kind of the full force uh, of Donald Trump's personality uh, and policies. And... But Mnuchin's a different animal, right? I mean, in some ways, he is a guy that maybe some of these uh, bank leaders would recognize. Yeah, definitely. I mean, he's, you know, he was a successful business person. He doesn't have any government experience, but, you know, he held a press conference at the end. He comes across as pretty reasonable. He chooses his, his words carefully, although he was following the, the you know, the Trump uh, administration line on trade. And what's not clear to me is, uh, you know, whether he's doing this out of conviction or whether as things evolve, maybe they will sort of drift back to the free trade consensus. I, I think it's too early to say that. So there's sort of a big question, and there's a, some slightly less big questions. I would say, correct me if I'm wrong here, in a way the big question is, is the United States enough a part of the G20 philosophically and behaviorally to be an international leader on these issues. So in other words, we, we know TPP's dead. We could argue back and forth about whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, uh, backing away from the Paris Climate Accords, and, and then this pretty forceful insistence that protectionism be at least uh, partially acknowledged as a, as a possibility at the G20. I mean, you can't lead a group if, in fact, you're kind of an ideological outlier. 
No, that's that's true. And and what we heard was that on, on Friday, when everybody made opening statements, Mnuchin made a statement which was basically, you know, we're not adhering to any of the previous agreements. Uh, we're a totally new group with this uh, totally new approach, and really positioned the United States at odds with everybody else that was there. And from from what we heard, these are all closed meetings. But from what we heard from people coming out of the meetings was that. It was basically the U.S. against everybody else. So it's it's hard to see where that's going. It certainly doesn't put the U.S. in a, in a leadership position. I, the, the U.S. can't force this down everybody else's throats. Right. So so um, that's sort of the big picture. And then there are smaller pictures. And you would have a, a pretty good idea, of, and they're not small pictures, they're smaller pictures, uh, about what some of those are. One of them clearly, and, and it is it spills over from President Trump's meeting with Angela Merkel uh, in the previous week, is trade with specifically with Germany, uh, any kind of presumed trade deficit, and, and perhaps uh, President Trump's insistence that uh, Germany isn't doing its part uh, with NATO. Do, do we know much about how that played uh, out behind closed doors? Uh, not too much. I mean, this I, that uh, whole issue is, I think, uh, taken uh, Germans totally off guard. I mean, they've always seen themselves as having a very friendly relationship with the United States. They've invested a lot of money in the United States. It's the biggest uh, customer for German goods, and no one has ever made an issue of this before. Uh, and the other thing that uh, totally throws throws them for a loop is that uh, you know these trade deals are not worked out between Germany and the United States. They're worked out between uh, the European Union as a group and, and the United States. So Trump talking about bilateral negotiations with Germany, that just uh, completely throws everybody off. Um, I, I think because these were multilateral talks, it was probably less about Germany versus the United States, except maybe in the, some of the meetings. But everybody was trying very hard to, to, you know, make it look like they were getting along and downplaying the conflict. So, uh, and obviously, this, these we're getting into the area of questions that might be kind of hard to answer. But you know, if you think about something like the Paris Climate Accords or or a lot of the stuff that the G, weeds that the G20 get into, I mean, what would be a possible set of responses to all this if, in fact, uh, the Trump administration wants to march to the beat of a pretty radically different drummer? Does the rest of the group, does the rest, does the rest of the community say, well, okay, but you know, we've got these treaties? And accords and longstanding policies, I, you know, go off and play in the corner, and we're just going to go without you. I think that's one scenario, scenario for sure. I mean, but it, it, it is a tough question to answer because it's also hard to see how the world functions without the United States and without some kind of agreement. So I, you know, I, I really don't know where that's going. I, I think the Europeans are hoping that over time they can kind of uh, sort of socialize the Trump people and kind of absorb them into the uh, traditions of uh, multilateral cooperation and uh, the whole ethos of the G20. Uh, but if that doesn't happen, I, you know, I don't really know where that leads. It, you know, it could be kind of ugly. Um, maybe you can kind of give us a sense a little bit uh, of how things typically are in the G20. In other words, m- my sense is that even on calmer days, you know, the United States might be associated with a, a past anyway of bold strokes and, and cowboy swagger and stuff like that. I don't think people really associated the Obama administration very much with that kind of thing. But but my, my sense of this is that for the most part, the international financial community in particular moves in very small steps so as not to knock over, you know, any piles of <laughs> of you know uh, of volatile material economic materials and and it 
it seems as though what's happening right now is that the Trump administration is landing feet first into this group with a pretty gigantic thud. Yeah, and it's they are they're very genteel events. Uh, this one was in Baden-Baden, which is this very nice spa town in southern Germany. They met in this very elegant uh, sort of hall with chandeliers and marble floors, sitting around a huge oval table. It's very consensus-oriented, as you say. No one makes any sudden moves. It's all very gradual. And so it was a shock for the, the Trump people to come riding into town the way that they did. I, I think the other thing, and, and this is what I heard from some of the participants that upset them, was that they felt the Trump people were blowing up the existing order without having any kind of clear alternative in mind. And, uh, and that, that was certainly very unsettling for the rest of the world. Yeah, it's actually um, uh, sort of word for word how other things like Obamacare have been described. I want to come back to um, Mnuchin, though. Um, I mean, the counter narrative to this is, as we said at the top, you know, he's he, he may have come across as smart and informed, a guy who understands some of the same number sets that the other people at the meeting understand uh, and not a nut. Um, so one possible conclusion that they could draw is it would be easier and better to talk to him now, negotiate with him now. He speaks our language. In July, things could be a, a lot more mercurial and unpredictable. I mean, did you get a sense of how people reacted to Mnuchin as separate from the administration he represents? Yeah, I think that, I mean, I think he came across uh, reasonably well, at least based on the public statements. Um, you know, the whole event was hosted by Germany and the finance minister, whose name is Wolfgang Schäuble, and he said many times that it was a pleasant atmosphere, they got a lot done, and everybody got along fine, and sure, there were differences, but it was all very professional. And, and Mnuchin actually said the same type of thing, that although they, they blocked uh, some of the usual uh, boilerplate language, that the atmosphere was good and it was very productive. So at least at some level, they, they do seem to be communicating. And, um, yeah, I think that the, the, the Europeans would like to get as much done as they can with this group. But the, the problem is there's not that much time. And um, so uh, I, I'm not sure what they can actually, how much they can actually do before uh, the next meeting in, in Hamburg. Um can we talk a little bit about how they would have reacted to the rhetoric on protectionism? Um, obviously, this is a general statement. Uh, I think somebody called it a ritualistic phrase for the G20. But, I, you know, I, particularly with this particular group, uh, the kinds of things that Donald Trump has talked about in the past have involved like China or Mexico. Um, how would the G20 think about uh, the notion that the U.S. would would maybe be interested in a more protectionist attitude about trade. I mean, it seems unlikely that with Germany or any of these other countries that we're, we're you know, likely to, I mean, maybe we are likely to change the ratio between exports and, and imports. What's your understanding of this? Yeah, well, I think that's, that's hard to do. I mean, it, it's certainly, I mean, one reason that everybody's in favor of free trade with the U.S. is it's a great customer. I mean, the, U, the United States has had for, for years, if not decades, a, a big trade deficit. And uh, so it's like, you know, somebody who has a credit card and is always willing to be maxing it out. Uh, so the rest of the world loves that, and the idea they might be cut off from that market is, is alarming. Um, but changing it is it's not so easy. Um, tariffs might have some effect. But a lot of it has to do with uh, just the choices that consumers make, what they like to buy. 
And, and also, if you look at Germany, which has a huge uh, trade surplus with the United States, it's, it's comes from cars, first of all, BMWs and Mercedes. So you have to convince people to stop buying those cars. And, uh, and then it comes from industrial goods like machinery. And a lot of these things are, are niche products that are in factories that you and I would have no idea what they were, but are very important to industry that often you can't buy anywhere else. There's no U.S. producer. There may be no other producer anywhere in the world. So how do you stop that? I really don't know. It doesn't, it doesn't really make any sense. Yeah, I mean, I, I, once again, uh, I, as you say, some of this stuff you can sort of understand kind of what the Trump administration policy is uh, when he's talking about auto manufacturers either moving or not moving to Mexico. Um, here it gets a little bit more complicated. It's not as though Germany has a whole bunch of jobs that would migrate back to the United States uh, in, in the teeth of some tariff or, or other protectionist measure, right? That's ba basically what you're saying. It's, there just isn't uh, a way in which B follows A here. No, and I mean, labor costs are lower in the United States than in Germany, so it's not some kind of labor dumping thing. It's, it's, it's about skills, uh, and, it's, and it's about the products they make. I mean, if you're practically every factory these days has industrial robots, and there's two big industrial robot makers. One is in Germany and one's in Japan. There isn't really one in the United States. So uh, if you all of a sudden put tariffs on industrial robots, what does that accomplish? It just makes things more expensive for, for U.S. factories. The only thing that might be possible is a lot of German companies have production in the United States. In Farmington, Connecticut, for example, there's a Trump, which is a maker of laser cutting machines, has a big factory. Maybe they would be somehow incentivized to, to move production to those types of facilities, in other words, to build things in the United States that they now build in, in Germany. But I don't think that that by itself is going to take care of the, the trade deficit. Just to avoid potential confusion, that's Trump with an F, Trump with an F Trump, on the end. Trump, yeah. right. <laughs> and uh, they're, yeah, they're located uh, in a, kind of an industrial park off Route 6 in Farmington. Um, Jack knows these things because he's not a real stranger to Connecticut. Um, so you're sitting in Frankfurt now, and I'm going to do the sort of classically um, unfair thing, which is to ask you kind of how people in a whole nation are responding. But, you know, I mean, we just went through this thing on Friday. Uh, with Angela Merkel visiting, there was kind of some some weirdness around the whole handshake question. There were some weird after tweets about Germany not paying its fair share for NATO, which appears not to be an accurate statement of things. Um, obviously, Germany and any other Western European nation watching this election season unfold in 2016, watching the inauguration in January. I mean, n n this isn't something that really sneaks up on them. There are ways in which they they probably took the measure. Of of this uh, man and, and the people who would come in with him. Yet, I, I don't know. I mean, like even over the last few days, I would imagine Germany is saying, well, well, wait a second, this is even different than we had imagined. How, how, what was the reaction in Germany, even in the press there, to the Merkel visit here? Yeah, well, I think that the most positive thing was one of the newspa newspapers said uh, it could have been worse. Um, <laughs> so that was, uh, <laughs> I guess, it's sort of the, the, the best way they, they could color it. It's it certainly people, uh, well, they've been thrown by Trump from the beginning, but, uh, you know, there was a, a strange moment when he said that 
Angela Merkel and him had a lot in common because they had both been bugged by Barack Obama. And if you watch Angela Merkel, she just sort of did this kind of mini recoil double take. Uh, and this is this, this stuff is very difficult for Germans to get their minds around. And, and the idea that they're seen as some kind of enemy, not paying their share of NATO and huge de- trade deficit. Uh, they've always seen America as a good friend, and, uh, and they don't understand why uh, uh, Trump is suddenly turning on them. I mean, how so, do, uh, yeah, how does that affect Merkel politically, too? Does she garner more support from her people because, in fact, she has to go and deal with this weird and difficult guy? Or does it stir up some of the same kinds of tendencies uh, that we've seen here? You know, that's a really interesting question. I'm not sure I know the answer. I mean, I think that when Germans watch what happened in Washington, that probably makes Merkel look pretty good because she was very cool. She handled it all uh, pretty well. Um, and uh, Germans like that. You know, that, that's what they like about Angela Merkel because she's very steady and and calm about things. Um, but Europeans are very worried about right wing populism here. There's a there's a right wing party in Germany that's been doing uh, gaining support. Everyone's really freaked out about the French elections next month and the idea that a far right candidate uh, could even get elected president. Um, so. People are worried that the Trump uh, approach will have, you know, this type of populism will uh, appeal to people over here and somehow give momentum to uh, these far-right candidates here. So that, that people are very worried about that. Well, Jack Ewing, you've been generous with your time today. Joining us from Frankfurt, uh, Jack Ewing, a European economics correspondent uh, for The New York Times. His book on the Volkswagen scandal will be published uh, in May. Thanks for being with us today, Jack. Colin, it was a pleasure. Thanks very much. All right. Um, We're going to uh, be taking a break pretty soon. Let me tell you uh, some things that are are going on this week. Tomorrow, uh, because of the Gorsuch hearings, it wasn't really clear whether we could get our show on the air, uh, our live show on the air. We have ready for you, because we think it fits with the Gorsuch hearings pretty well, we have um, ready for you the show that we did uh, a few months ago about the U.S. Constitution, uh, including the question of whether the U.S. Constitution should be amended more often. But anyway, you'll be hearing an awful lot during those hearings tomorrow uh, about uh, Judge Gorsuch and his attitudes towards the Constitution. You might, at 1 o'clock, hear our show about the Constitution. What we're going to be doing uh, at 1 o'clock tomorrow is uh, taping a show. We do this every year, uh, although we're modifying it this year. There's something called the Tournament of Books, in which um, the Morning News, uh, an online publication, takes a recent, uh, takes the previous year's literary fiction, uh, r- raises them out across a bracket, not unlike the basketball brackets, and then has them compete against one another. We kind of decided that they have, I don't know, 16 books. That's too many. So we boiled it down to four. Uh, we're suggesting we're not going to air this show until probably the 28th. So you have time to read maybe at least one of them um, and maybe more. So they are the Knicks, and that's N-I-X, uh, Underground Railroad, um, back by Coulson Whitehead, uh, Mr. Monkey by Francine Prose, and Moon Glow by Michael Chabon. Anyway, we will record that show tomorrow, get it ready for you uh, at a future date when we have a little bit more security about the idea that we can actually get it on the air. We also have some stuff uh, coming up uh, as we go on this week. Uh, we'll be doing a show about medical marijuana. It's a little bit more complicated. It has a little bit more nuts and bolts to it, maybe, than you've been told. Uh, so, And we'll also be doing a show on Thursday about cash. Um, some of this will be about the possible transition to a ca- cashless society, but I, I also want us to talk about our psychological relationship to cash. 
the stuff that you uh, get out of the ATM and put into your wallet uh, is stuff that uh, you don't have kind of a neutral set of psychological vibrations in relation to. So even, even as we talk about the notion of going to a cashless society, we have to think a little bit more about, you know, I mean, Freud had some very specific ideas, for example, about how we uh, interact with money, with actual physical money and cash. Uh, we'll also be talking about the, there are, and even as we talk about going to a cashless, cashless society, there are financial planning advocates who say, no, 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 you should be buying a lot more of the purchases, uh, making a lot more of the purchases you make with cash because credit cards give you a very distorted idea of what your financial picture is. So all of that's coming in the week ahead. Thanks for joining us for this segment. Coming up, we're going to be talking about Rex Tillerson's visit to China. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kion Wolf, and this guy the Trump administration sent to watch us. Who is that guy? He's certainly not Amanda Fish or our intern Ali Oshinsky. The part of Bill Curry was played by Roger Stone. All of our previous shows can be found at wnpr.org slash Colin. On tomorrow's show, we'll probably be preempted by the Gorsuch hearings, and if not, we'll have a show about the Constitution for you. And now, back to Colin. The last few days have seen one of the many new things that we see under the Trump administration, and that would be the first road trip uh, for the Secretary of State, Rex Tillerson. Um, it had some uh, qualities to it that we typically don't see, starting with the lack of a normal press pool or press pool reporter. We'll come to that in just a second, but we're going to begin with uh, Simon Denyer, uh, China bureau chief for The Washington Post and the author of Rogue Elephant, Harnessing the Power of India's Unruly Democracy. Um, although, actually, Simon, let me begin asking you this. Inasmuch as you weren't on the plane the way you might have been in previous administrations, uh, how did you and the rest of the foreign policy journalism establishment cover this trip? So we have a bureau in, in Tokyo. So we were at the Tokyo press conference. We, I think we got the transcript from Seoul. I don't, don't know if we went to Seoul. And we were there. I was there in Beijing. So we were able to cover the press conferences that Secretary Tillerson had. What you miss, of course, is the briefing on the plane. Now, you know, that doesn't always happen. Not every, not every trip does every secretary come to the back of the plane and talk to reporters, but they do occasionally. You know, occasionally you get a little bit of an off-the-record briefing from other officials to give you a bit of guidance as to what's going on. So, you know, you do miss a little bit of the inside track, a little bit of the spin, if you like, mm. from the secretary and, and his team. On the other hand... Um, I'm on the ground in Beijing, so I can also I have the, the the advantage that I can see how things play in Beijing. So when the secretary's gone, I'm still here, and I'm able to sort of talk to Chinese experts and Chinese people to see how the trip has gone down to the Chinese. It, it has been suggested, uh, and this is maybe a less than substantive problem, but it has been suggested that, for example, during the Seoul visit, there seemed to be some confusion about whether there was going to be a, a final dinner meeting. Uh, and the, the Seoul press, the South Korean press, played this as the secretary being fatigued, uh, too tired for the meeting. Uh, the Tillerson camp is saying that's not right. Is that the kind of thing that might have been straightened out a little bit more easily if there'd been the usual contingent of American journalists writing something other than the South Korean version of that story? 
Well, maybe. I mean, there were there were journalists who went and stayed, you know, who who flew from DC on commercial on a commercial airliner and were in Seoul. So they were they were there, and I, I spoke to the guy at Bloomberg, and he said, you know, he was able to very quickly verify, you know, there hadn't been a dinner arranged, and that all the officials were still in their hotel room, and you know, he he sort of tried to shoot down the story, but. You know what happens in these days is that once a story gets out and it's around the Twitter sphere, it's very hard to put it back into the box. So, despite the fact there were journalists, um, you know, the news just kind of mushroomed and, and grew as these things do. So, I'm not sure actually that that story would have, you know, would, would have been any different. It was just one of those occasions where something that was probably incorrect, that was maybe spun by the Koreans, uh, just got out there and, and had its own life. So, uh, yeah, so exactly. And so now there's a hashtag Tillerson is tired a meme going around Twitter. Um, well, let's get to some things that are probably a little bit more important than whether he's tired or not. Uh, and maybe one reason he would be tired was a lot of stuff was happening there. And he uh, in Seoul, I don't know if you'd call it saber rattling exactly, but he in while in Seoul kind of laid down some markers uh, about North Korea. And North Korea was very quick to respond by shooting a missile into the air. So is this kind of it sort of looks like they're sort of testing him, like how fast on his feet is he? Or was this a coincidence? Well, I mean, it, it's hard to say whether, whether it was a coincidence. The North Koreans certainly knew he was coming ahead of time. Um, so it's entirely possible that they scheduled this to, to coincide with the trip. It's the sort of thing they might do. Um, but, you know, having said that, the U.S.-South Korean annual military exercises are happening at the moment. So that's another good reason for them to rattle the sabre, as you say. But certainly, it's a huge problem for Secretary Tillerson. It's a massive problem. He doesn't have any easy answers because there aren't any easy answers. So it's really occupied the lion's share of the trip. There's a lot of other issues to talk about, but that problem really, I think, dominated the conversations probably in in Japan, Korea, and in China. Well, let's talk about China and North Korea for a second. This is a much more complicated situation for China, maybe than a lot of Americans realize. I mean, the notion that they can have sort of one solid unalloyed policy towards North Korea doesn't seem to be the case. In some ways, they seem almost as worried about North Korea, if not more so, than we are. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, I think the Chinese have have lost patience with the North Koreans. Xi Jinping is said not to like Kim Jong-un and vice versa. But they don't want the regime to fail for a number of reasons. They don't want millions of refugees flooding across their borders. More importantly, they don't want a U.S.-allied, a unified Korean regime right on their border. So, you know, they're not going to abandon the North Koreans. They don't want instability. They don't want the regime to fall. But they don't like the regime, particularly. The idea that they were brothers, I think, has been... That's rather died, that idea mm-hmm. in Beijing, because Pyongyang does lots of very embarrassing things that the, the, the Chinese don't like, like having a nuclear weapons program, for example, or assassinating uh, you know, the, brother, the half-brother of Kim Jong-un, who happened to be a guest of the Chinese. So the, the Chinese can't control them. One of the problems is the Chinese don't want to do anything that will destabilize the regime, and that really means you know, they're not going to do anything which is going to convince them to abandon their nuclear weapons program. 
So Tillerson spoke in a way that I would have imagined would make the Chinese somewhat uncomfortable before he got to China. He seemed to be kind of hinting on, well, not hinting, talking about preemptive military action against the uh, against North Korea. I mean, that seems, I don't know, it seems like a very big card to play on your first trip to, to anywhere. <laughs> right, absolutely. I mean, if you look at his, his entire comments in context, he did say there are many, many other options before we get to military strikes. But on the other hand, he did say that military strikes are on the table. And, and not surprisingly, that dominated the headlines. And that would have also been very much noticed in North Korea, too. So the problem is, of course, you know, you know, military strikes are not a good option, but it's hard to say that they're off the table because North Korea presents a very clear danger to, to the region and even to the United States. They're developing this missile program, they're developing their nuclear weapons program all the time, and they're shouting about it and they're proud of it. So, yes, he did introduce that, that element of military strikes, albeit, as I say, after a process where he first wants to tighten the sanctions, tighten the noose around the North Koreans and convince them to abandon the program. Now, let's talk a little bit about the direct interaction between Tillerson and President Xi. The term mutual respect uh, was trotted out. Do do both sides share a common understanding about what a term like that means? (laughs) Well, the Chinese certainly have an understanding of it, which is why you know, uh, the Obama administration uh, sh- shied away from using the term mutual respect. It, it did use some Chinese terms when it described the relationship at first, but then, but then rather got its fingers burnt. The term mutual respect to the Chinese comes with a corollary phrase, mutual respect for each other's core interests. What that means is that China's core interests, Taiwan, Tibet, Hong Kong, Uh, potentially the South China Sea as well, are issues of China's national sovereignty that the United States should really steer clear of. China's not going to compromise on those issues, and the United States shouldn't ask it to. So the problem with saying mutual respect is that it's interpreted by the Chinese as as accepting that these issues are non-negotiable. I mean, this may seem like sort of arcane diplomatic language, but I think most people who look at the U.S.-China relationship think that this kind of language does matter and it does send a signal. Well, I, I, it did seem as though Tillerson is there with, at minimum, two missions, maybe even two tonal missions. On the one hand, you know, he has to do kind of a gentle waltz with President Xi, A, so that uh, President Xi doesn't lose face in the region, and also so that President Xi heads into his summit with President Trump himself in a reasonable frame of mind. On the other hand, this, uh, there's this other dance that's not a waltz. It's more of a war dance. Uh, it's backed up by some tweets by President Trump in real time uh, about what China needs to do about North Korea. I mean, it seemed as though both of those things had to be happening at the same time. Right, absolutely. It's, it's, it's very hard to know how this is going to shake out. I mean, one way of looking at it is that Tillerson was playing the, ba- the good cop to Trump's bad cop, that he comes and, you know, Trump's tweeting the bad cop stuff uh, from Washington. Tillerson comes, he, he, as you say, gives Xi Jinping some face by using this term mutual respect. He doesn't offer any criticism in public. In private, he says, look, you've really got to cooperate, otherwise you know, the bad cop, my boss, is really going to get angry, and that's going to be bad, 
you know, for the relationship as a whole. So, you know, one way to interpret this is actually a, a smart negotiating strategy. Other people would argue that he's actually, by using this term mutual respect, he's given something away to the Chinese too early and that he's kind of compromised in a way which actually makes himself and the United States look weak. So it's a matter of opinion. I'm not going to tell you which way to interpret it. I think time will tell whether this administration has a smart negotiating strategy when it comes to China or, or whether the Chinese are sort of, you know, running rings around them. It, it's really too early to say. Now, I'm going to ask you a really unfair question because it's so difficult to pre- pre- predict the behavior of all the actors in this situation. You have a secretary of state with essentially no d- diplomatic diplomatic background, a very unpredictable president, and a kind of volatile situation over there. Let's stick North Korea over on you know a back burner and let it simmer for a second because so much of what happens with North Korea will be determined by what North Korea actually does. But in terms of the other stakes that are sitting there. I mean, I'm wondering if there is one that strikes you as a potential early flashpoint. I can't imagine the Trump administration getting particularly upset about, for example, Tibet. But is there something that you can see where it it seems, I mean, trade, for example, wasn't really mentioned on this Tillerson trip. I mean, where do you think the friction, if it comes, is going to come? Right. I mean, well, there are a number of issues. I mean, trade hasn't gone away. And I think you'll see that as the trade team gets its feet properly under the table, there will be measures unveiled on trade. I think that you will see Wilbur Ross and Lighthizer unveiling some measures to do with trade, and I think that shoe has yet to drop. Um, There is talk of arms sales to Taiwan, which could also irritate the relationship. And, of course, the South China Sea remains uh, a potential flashpoint there. I'm not sure that the Trump administration really wants to take on the South China Sea right now um and and one hopes that the chinese aren't going to do anything too provocative early in this new trump administration to upset things by by building more islands for example in the in the south china sea so i am relatively hopeful that one there might not be a flashpoint but i do think uh trade hasn't gone away and i I, perhaps tillerson didn't focus on that this time he did make some some glancing comments about it but I think there are other people in the administration who, who will be pushing that agenda. And, and we've yet to see exactly what they're going to do and how the Chinese will react. All right. Simon Denyer, our new friend. We have so many friends of The Washington Post these days, but uh, from the China, China Bureau Chief for The Washington Post and the author of Rogue Elephant, Harnessing the Power of India's Unruly Democracy. Thank you for joining us from Beijing today. It was a pleasure. Nice to talk to you. All right. Bye-bye now. Cheers. Bye-bye.